Hey, this is Dan Kogan. I'm one of the pastors at Grace Family in Pleasant Hill, Missouri, and this is our podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today and let you know you matter to us because you matter to God. Enjoy the message. We know the outcome will be the cure, amen? The cure from what? Well, this morning we're going to be talking about the cure for death. That's pretty good news, isn't it? Hey guys, I've got the cure for death. We ought to probably share that cure with the world, huh? Would you stand with me as we read from our scripture this morning? We're going to be reading from Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, and you can follow along with me on the screen here. It says this, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Yes, people sinned even before the law was given, but it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. Still, everyone died from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not disobey an explicit commandment of God as Adam did. Now, Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ who was yet to come. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. Amen? For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this man, this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. Amen? For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, so now God's wonderful grace rules instead giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Gracious Father, we are humbled in your presence that you have chosen to set your love on us. We could never earn it. We could never deserve it. But you've given it freely because of the perfect, sinless life and sacrificial death of Jesus on our behalf. So, Father, as we open your word this morning, we ask that your word would act as a mirror and show us our need for you and show us how we ought to now live in light of this good news, in light of this cure for death. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So the cure for death, we've been given a terminal diagnosis. God's word tells us there in Romans 5 that sin came into the world through Adam and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. All of us have this condition. None of us are exempt from this. 
We all share the same fate, which is death, right? When Adam sinned in the garden by rebelling against God's command, his explicit command, he doomed all of mankind. And every one of us, no matter how dark or light our skin, no matter what kind of accent we speak with, no matter how tall or short or skinny or heavy, no matter what we look like, what we sound like, we share one common trait with our first father, Adam. Rebellion. Sinfulness. An inherent hatred of God's design. David, the king of Israel, wrote this in Psalm 51. I was born a sinner. From the moment my mother conceived me, I was sinful. And you'll hear us say from time to time, you're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. Are you following with my, my logic so far this morning? This is our condition. None of us are exempt. But here is... If that is our diagnosis, here is our prognosis. Here's what the future can look like for us. Scripture also tells us this in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. The time is coming, says Jesus, when all the dead, that's us, in their graves, will hear the voice of God's Son, and they will rise again. Those who have done good will rise to experience eternal life, and those who have continued in evil will rise to experience judgment. I think most of us can basically discern the meaning of that phrase, continue in evil. But what about that other phrase, those who have done good? If you've been around here for any time at all, you know that we not only don't preach a works-based salvation. In fact, we condemn works-based salvation messages as heretical and damning to our souls. Because it doesn't matter how hard you try, it doesn't matter how good you you make yourselves in the eyes of your fellow mankind, you can't justify yourself before God. So we see a phrase like this, those who have done good, and we go, what do we do with that, right? Well, we'll get into that in a bit more detail later, but for the time being, I want us to primarily consider this universal diagnosis, which is death. And our prognosis, or the result of either receiving the prescription or refusing treatment. In order to do so, we're going to need to talk about what the treatment is, what the medicine is. I say we have the cure for death. I want to be explicitly, uh, uh, I should say, I want to be explicit with you that the cure is nothing within us. The gospel is not something we do. The gospel is something God has done. Amen? The cure for death is the good news of what Jesus has done. He came into the world to save sinners. And I'm worse than you. Look at somebody next to you and say, I'm worse than you. But God cured me. I'm worse than you, but God cured me. I'm not better than you, maybe better off, but not better, right? So I'd like to make a recommendation that when when you would typically in conversation use the word saved, I've been saved, replace that with cured. I've been cured. Because would you believe that when people in the world hear us say, I'm saved, brother, some of them tune us out because they've just heard us say it over and over and it's, it's lost Meaning, 
because we have applied it to people who have not truly been saved. So I'd like to encourage us to start using this language. I've been cured. I've been given the cure for death, and I want to share the cure with you. I also want to let you know that if you've received this treatment, if you've been given the cure, you automatically, whether you realize it or not, been recruited into medical school. I'm not going to do this through the whole sermon, but I'm going to have you look at your neighbor and say one more thing, just because I've always wanted to hear you guys do this. Look at your neighbor and say, what's up, doc? We're not the doctor. We know this. Jesus is the physician. But at the very least, if we've been given the cure for death, we have been recruited to administer the medicine. So at best, maybe we're a physician's assistant. Okay? I want to share briefly a quick story with you. Many of you may be unaware that my wife, Amy, has type 1 diabetes. And she was diagnosed when she was 17 years old. And she was taken to a hospital and was, I wouldn't say treated poorly at the hospital, but was just kind of treated like a number. Now, hospitals deal with a lot of people, don't they? So we have to, we have to extend some grace and go, they weren't intentionally trying to be mean to Amy, but she didn't have a great experience there. But being 17 years old, they, they realized very quickly once she was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes that the best place for her to receive treatment was at a children's hospital. And so they transferred her to Children's Mercy Hospital in downtown Kansas City where she immediately began receiving wonderful treatment. They walked her through the process of what this looks like, what life looks like for you now. It's going to be okay. You're not alone. There is medicine for this. There's not a cure yet for type 1 diabetes, but you can live life basically like anyone else now that we know what's been causing these problems. And she was treated so well there that she decided in that moment that she wanted to be uh, in the health care field, and she wanted specifically to work at Children's Mercy. And Amy and I have been married for 12 years next week. We'll celebrate our 12-year anniversary. And she started working at Children's Mercy just before we got married. So she's been at Children's Mercy for 12 years. I, I'm very proud of her as her biggest fan and supporter that she made that decision, she made that commitment, and she has stuck with it. And so this is what it's like for us in the Christian life. We've been given the cure for death. Some of our experiences may look like uh, we, we weren't treated as well. Maybe we were treated a bit like a number. Uh, but I assure you that does not reflect upon the doctor. That reflects upon our limited ability as physician's assistants. And so if that's your story, I would like to apologize to you. I'm sorry that that's been your experience. And know that the doctor cares for you deeply. He loves you. Amen? I feel like that would be the the, the right opportunity for me to do a next turn to your neighbor and say, but I'm not going to do it because I promised you I wasn't. So what is the medicine? We've, we've talked about that the medicine is the good news of Jesus Christ, but I want to look at this. Eugene Peterson paraphrased Romans 5.18 like this. Just as one person did it wrong and got us into all this trouble with sin and death, another person did it right and got us out of it. Very simply put, Jesus is the remedy. Jesus is the medicine. Jesus is the cure. Paul doesn't say Adam messed things up pretty bad, but if you can just 
try harder, if you can just be nice enough to one another, then you can save yourself. You can undo this curse. Paul doesn't say that. No, he gives us one hope, Jesus. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. Everyone who is born is descended from Adam. So all of us start out at the same place. The the foot of the cross is level. Nobody is closer to Jesus than anyone else. We've all been born dead in our trespasses and sins. And if something doesn't change, we will eventually die eternally. Do you sense the gravity of this? We're not given several options to choose from. Sometimes when we go to the doctor and we have a physical problem, they'll give us a few options. They, you know, they, they may say, well, you've been injured pretty badly. Some of you in the second row might be able to relate to this. You've been injured pretty badly, and you can either undergo extensive uh, physical therapy, or we can heavily medicate you, or we can prescribe some kind of medicine. That's not the case we're in spiritually. You don't get to choose between Jesus or Allah or Buddha. We don't have a choice, brothers and sisters. If we want to live, the treatment, the cure for death is Jesus Christ alone. We're inclined to think that we can work our way to God. Does anybody know what that's called? If you think you can live a righteousness a righteous enough life to work your way to God. The word for that is legalism. And not only will it not save you, it will push you further from God. And typically what comes hand in hand with legalism for ourselves is imposing this legalism on others. And we say, well, if you really want to be saved, then you have to do this and that. It's a Jesus plus gospel and it's, it's no gospel at all. When we add anything to the perfected work of Christ at Calvary, we detract from everything Jesus accomplished. But do you know what God says about our so-called good works? They're filthy rags. I remember uh, I was on a mission in Mexico years ago, and... This guy came up to clean the windshield. This was how he made his money. He, he just walked up to the, to the church van, and he, he sprayed our windshield and started wiping it with uh, a filthy rag. It, it, it didn't clean the window. I'm not saying he never cleaned any other windows before, but that time it was, it was a picture of what it seems like when we come to God and we say, thank you, but I'd like to add something. I'll see your perfect righteousness of Christ and this gleaming white garment that he offers me, but I have this wonderful flannel that I wore in the field yesterday when I was baling hay, and I'd like to add this flannel to that gleaming white garment of Christ's. It's silly. We, We can add nothing to what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. However, this is not an excuse for us to just live however we would like. Amen? We're not saved by what we do, but how often would we be tempted to say, well, if we're not saved by what we do, then I can just do whatever I want, can't I? I love this quote from Dallas Willard. He says, the gospel is not opposed to effort, but it's opposed to earning. There's a spot on the back of your worship guide if you want to jot that one down. That's a good one. The gospel is not opposed to effort, but to earning. We can't earn God's love by trying hard enough But if we're not making some effort 
to live a life of thankfulness for what he's done, then I've got a new diagnosis for you. Maybe you never received the cure to begin with. Ephesians 2 talks about it like this. Beginning in verse 8, it says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Verse 10 says, for we are God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. I'll never forget the the first sermon I ever preached here. I said, are we saved by good works? To which there was a resounding no. And I said, yes, we are. And I, I remember seeing John Melvin standing in the back, sweating bullets. And he goes, what is this dude preaching? We're saved by the righteous work of Christ, not by our own righteous works. We are not saved by what we do, but we are saved by what Christ has done unto good works. So if we're not living a life of thankfulness, and that looks like doing good deeds then maybe we haven't received the cure. And this morning, maybe that's you. Maybe you need to reflect upon, is the life I'm living showing the characteristics of a life that has been given the cure for death? Are we cured from death by the act of water baptism? Not a trick question. I'm not going to make you say no and then go, yes, we actually are. No, we are not saved by being baptized in water, but because Jesus tells us to be baptized, it's necessary for our obedience. Do you see the difference? Are we cured from death by prayer? This one is a little trickier. It's not intentionally tricky. But when I ask you this question, are we saved by prayer? There's two places our mind will probably go. One is, well, don't you have to pray the sinner's prayer to be saved? The other place that our mind can go is, no, we are not saved by what we do. The gospel is not what we do. It is what God has done. So like with baptism, which follows our conversion, I would like to put forth for you today this consideration that prayer also follows our new birth. We've been made alive together with Christ because God has given us the gift of repentance. So when we pray and we repent and we say, I need you, I recognize that I'm a sinner and that you're holy and that I can't stand in your presence as a holy God when I'm sinful. That's not a work that you've done. It's a work that God has done in you. This is a heavy topic to think about. So I'm, I'm not asking you to comprehend it because to be quite honest, I don't fully comprehend it myself. All I know is we can't take credit for it. Scripture describes us as dead because of our disobedience and many sins. And I've asked you this question before, what can dead men do? Rot. All we can do unless the Holy Spirit regenerates us and gives us a new heart is just lay there. Years ago, I wrote a song 
And the lyric was, I was at the bottom of the sea. Your grace reached down and lifted me. It's not terribly creative. Nobody's sitting there going, wow, how did he come up with that rhyme? But theologically, this is what I want us to take away from that. God doesn't throw our dead, rotting corpses at the bottom of the ocean, a life preserver, and say, grab on. Jesus, at the risk of his own life, dove in and laid down his life to resuscitate us, to breathe life into us. So there's one third work, one good work that I'd like for us to consider this morning. And this is really the the impetus for this message today. We're not saved by being baptized. We're not saved by prayer. We're likewise not saved by telling others about Jesus. But all three of these are necessary responses on our part. When we've been made alive together with Christ, we will be baptized out of obedience. We will pray because we want to be in communion, in relationship with our Heavenly Father, and we will tell others about what Jesus has done. The reason I have built the tension to this place so far is so that you don't feel for a moment like if you're not out knocking on doors, sharing the gospel, that you're not saved. That's not the case, brothers and sisters. But we do need to wrestle with why we're not doing it. And that's my challenge to us this morning. This is our obligation as recipients of this cure. Imagine tomorrow afternoon you're walking from your house to your mailbox and you hear someone screaming for help in your neighborhood. Maybe you live in a rural area and it's a bit further away, but you can faintly hear screams for help. Most of us, I would venture to say all of us, will stop and try to discern where the screams are coming from and try our hardest to help this person in need. We don't know if it's a real or a perceived threat, but in this moment, we hear someone crying for help. It's human nature to say, if I were in their position, I would want someone to help me, so I'm going to find out where these screams are coming from, and I'm going to do everything I can to help them. And while I'm on my way, I'm calling 911 because I might not be fully equipped to help this person, but I'm going to try my hardest. Now, let me take this analogy just a couple of steps further. Imagine a couple years ago, that was you in a burning house screaming for help. And someone heard you, and they came to your rescue. A neighbor, a passerby, a firefighter. Someone came and rescued you from that burning building. Now fast forward to this week, and you hear someone else screaming for help. How much more inhumane and unkind and and quite honestly hateful would it be for us to ignore those cries for help? Having been given this gift of life, how hateful of us would it be to ignore those cries? And yet we do it every day when we pass by those who have not heard and responded to the good news of Jesus Christ. We have friends and family. We have neighbors and coworkers and people around us all day, every day, who are just simply unaware that they're in a burning building. Let's not wait until they cry out. Let's go let them know about the danger they're in. 
Now listen, I'm not trying to be spiritually superior to you in this. I don't share the good news as I should. And I think that we have created a culture where we don't do that. We've built programs and institutions where someone may come to me and say, Dan, do you feel guilty that you're not out telling people about Jesus? And I'd go, no, that's not really my job. That's the job of the congregation. My job is to equip them for the work of ministry. I could justify myself, and I could feel pretty good about myself by doing that. But that's just not the case. It is my job. And as a confession to you, I've not done a good job at that. I have selfishly hoarded this cure. I've walked by those who have not known Jesus. And in the interest of saving myself some time, I have allowed them to stay in their burning building. But then conversely, someone would say to you, do you feel guilty for not sharing the gospel? And you'd say, no, it's Pastor Dan's job. And so then none of us do it. This is why I want to be clear and confess to you my shortcoming in terms of sharing the good news. I'm not standing before you today saying I've done a better job at it than you have. We have all been failing at it. Some of us do better than others. And we need to learn from those of our brothers and sisters who are, who are passionate about sharing the gospel. Now, I don't want to just lay this on you and not offer something practical for us to work on together. So I want to take the next few minutes of this message to just look at some ways that we can tell others about the cure. Okay? Got the back of your bulletin handy? After Jesus had been resurrected, he gave the disciples what we call the Great Commission. It's familiar to many of us. It's your favorite passage. But let's hear it again and refresh our memories, and maybe this will be new to some of us. But Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20 says this. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, because all authority has been given to me, therefore, Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of this age. I mostly, when I think of the Great Commission, think of Matthew 28. It is also recorded for us in Mark chapter 16, and it's, it's recorded slightly differently not because of a discrepancy, but because these were different men of God who were witnessing these events and were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write it down as it struck them. And in Mark chapter 16, it's interesting the way Jesus comes to the 12. It says he came and rebuked them for their unbelief. These are the disciples. These are Jesus' inner circle. These are his closest friends. And Jesus... Newly resurrected from the grave, comes to the disciples and rebukes them for their unbelief. But there's not even a split second of time between rebuking them for their unbelief and saying, now go tell others about this. 
So how many of you have ever refrained from sharing the gospel because you felt inadequate to do so? You didn't feel up to the task. This is part of the culture I think we've created. Is that men with good intentions, even myself, will stand before you and talk about the theological training that we pursue. And talk about the big theological books that we read. And I am not opposed to those things. These are good things, brothers and sisters. But I have inadvertently given the impression that if you don't read Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, that you can't effectively share the gospel. That was never God's intention. And quite frankly, that was never Calvin's intention in writing the Institutes of the Christian Religion. So we need to be together mindful of the culture that we're creating. These two passages, Matthew 20, 18 and Mark 16, form the foundation for what we call evangelism. And this word evangelism simply comes from a a word in the Bible that means good news. So an evangelist is someone who is carrying good news to others. So as those who have been given this cure for death, we're tasked with taking that cure to anyone and everyone we cross paths with. We've talked in this pulpit before about this phrase, therefore go. And for years I understood that phrase to refer to going to other countries. And it kind of makes sense if you think about it, because right after he says, therefore go, he says, go make disciples of all nations. And so we oftentimes, both rightly and wrongly, associate this with an exclusively foreign missions model. The problem with that is that there are people right here in our town who need the gospel just as much as a remote tribe in Africa. And it was not God's design for only foreigners to bear the good news. So it was helpful for me several years ago when a pastor friend of mine helped me to understand that what Jesus literally is saying is, as you go, make disciples, or in your going, make disciples. And I heard that and I thought, wow, that's, that's really liberating, isn't it? And for me, it was maybe a bit too liberating because I thought, well, if it's just in my going, then maybe I, I can just model it for people. Maybe I don't have to tell them what Jesus has done. Maybe I can just live a, a distinct enough Christian life that they'll want to become a Christian. I have never seen it happen. The number of people that I have had the privilege of leading to faith in Christ has been because I have opened the word with them and preached. I have taught And you don't have to do so with great eloquence or excellence. The disciples in Matthew 28 were a group of untrained fishermen. So Jesus isn't saying you have to go get a a, a master's of divinity or a doctorate of theology in order to share the good news. We just do it. We trust, too, that when we say to someone, I want to tell you about what Jesus has done. We're going to do it poorly. It's just the fact of the matter. Myself included. I'm going to stutter like Moses. I'm going to insert myself into the story. (laughs) 
We're not going to do it perfectly. But what is the effectiveness of the gospel? Is it in how well we do in delivering it? Or is it the message itself? So I was considering that this week. That we, we have taken, me being the first among them, remember I'm, I'm worse than you. We take a, a, a passage like this and we say, I can make disciples just in my going. And we misapply it and we refrain from preaching the gospel. And I, I was trying to think of a helpful way to explain this. If I told you, when you leave the sanctuary this morning, there are some flowers out front and they smell beautiful. Go out and smell the roses. Some of you might go out and as you walk by the roses, just get a whiff of them and go, oh, he was right. Those do smell nice. But the explicit command is to go and smell the roses. Jesus doesn't just tell us to try to teach by how we live. He tells us to go make disciples, teaching them to observe all that he has commanded. It's an active command. Like the active command to go smell. Don't just go passively smell the roses. You'll only get some of the joy in that. And let me tell you, brothers and sisters, I have been in the body of Christ for the majority of my earthly life. I came to faith in Christ when I was six years old. And the most joyful Christians that I have known in my life are the most evangelistic ones. I want you to get the most joy out of going and teaching and making disciples. I don't want you to just simply passively go. Wouldn't it be weird if I stood up here and pantomimed a sermon for 30 or 40 minutes? It would be entertaining to be sure. You'd probably make an internet meme out of me, but it would not be very educational or inspirational. When I stand before you and I open the scriptures, it's my command to teach. Now, you're not all going to go out and teach a 40-minute lesson to your neighbor. So that's why I want to get into some of these practical tools. The first is something called spiritual chumming. Do we have any fishermen? Fishermen? Any? Yeah? So I've only done, you know, small town Missouri fishing. We got a little Mickey Mouse rod and reel. Never did very good. But, but serious fishermen do something called chumming. They throw out bait. This is how they capture big fish, you know, tuna. And is haddock a big fish or is that kind of a smile? I'm betraying my ignorance of fishing. But anyway, the, the process of chumming is throwing out bait long before you even throw out a net or a fishing line to attract the fish. This idea comes from uh, Pastor Greg Laurie. Are you familiar with Greg Laurie? He's a pastor in Southern California. He's on the radio, and he, he proposes this in his book, Tell Someone. Essentially, he encourages us to make a spiritual point and see if our conversation partner responds. So he says to try mentioning that God answered a prayer for you or that he blessed you in some specific way or say something like, has anyone ever told you that there's a God in heaven who loves you? And they won't always respond, and that's okay. This is just one technique that we can employ to begin a dialogue. So you walk up to someone. This happened to me years ago in a food court mall. I was eating And I saw someone across the way, an older woman, and I got up and I went over to her table and I said, I just really felt strongly that I needed to tell you that God loves you. 
And do you know what happened? Not much. And that's okay. That's going to happen sometimes. She just said, thank you, and went back to her meal, and I got back up and went over to my table. But here's the thing is that those kinds of invitations to dialogue can open a door. There may be times where they just go, thank you. There may be times where they say, get out of my face. I don't want that nonsense. And there might be times where they burst into tears and say, I just prayed that if God was real, he would send someone to let me know. It's a very practical way for us to open dialogue. The second method that I want to share with you is this. I borrowed this from the North American Mission Board. And you can look this up on uh, YouTube or Vimeo. Look up Jimmy Scroggins. He's a pastor in Florida. And he shares a method called Three Circles. And we're going to put this up on the screen. Throw that first slide up there for me. God's design. So you begin this method of sharing the gospel by saying, God has a design for our life. And this design covers every area of our life. It covers our family, our marriage, even our sex life, our jobs and careers. It covers our money. God has a design for every aspect of our life. But as we said earlier in the message, as children of Adam, we naturally want to rebel against God. So move to that next slide. We rebel from God's design through sin. And this sin leads us away from God's design into a place called brokenness. Let's see that third slide. So this is where we find ourselves. And this brokenness is real, and it hurts. It's awful, and it's our connection point to the world. Because everyone experiences brokenness. If you say you haven't experienced brokenness, you're either lying or you haven't yet, and you're about to. But this is the inroad for us to share the good news. Brokenness isn't just due to our own actions, and we need to make this clear as we share the good news. Our general brokenness is a result of what Adam did at the beginning of creation. But even more recently than that, we can be affected by the actions and the sin and the selfish natures of everyone around us. And we find ourselves in this place, and it might look like depression. It might look like addiction. It might look like pornography. It might look like fractured relationships. And naturally, we want so badly to find our way out of brokenness that we try just about everything in our power But it's an infinite loop. It's just more sin. Scripture says everything apart from faith is sin. Did you know that I can eat my meal this afternoon in worship or I can eat my meal in sin because I can do it apart from faith? So everything we do to try to get ourselves out of this cycle of brokenness just leaves us in a loop of brokenness because it's more and more sin. But rather than just sinning more, which leads to being even more broken, the Bible gives us a way back to God. And that is, as we've discussed today, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the means he uses to bring us back is through what the Bible calls repentance. Let's move to that next slide. Repentance is the way that we can get out of that cycle of brokenness. Something changes in us. Ezekiel 36 talks about the Holy Spirit replacing our stony heart with a heart of flesh. If you're at this place of repentance for your sin, that means that the Holy Spirit has changed your heart. Something changes in us and we turn and we run away from our sin 
that we, the sin that we embraced in our brokenness. And this is where you can share what Jesus has done. This third circle is the gospel, the news, the cure. Why repent? Because God loves sinners like this. This is how God loves sinners. We hated and rebelled against God, and because of that, we deserve death. But in his kindness, he sent his only son to live a completely sinless life. He never sinned. We could never do that because we're born sinners. And then he was murdered in the most painful and humiliating way by being beaten and stripped and nailed to a wooden cross. And we deserved that. He didn't deserve that. But he took that punishment in our place. And if you will come to him in faith, his sinlessness gets credited to your account and your sinfulness is placed on him. And three days after he was murdered, he was resurrected. He was raised to life again. And that's good news for us. Amen? That is the cure because by being raised from the dead, Jesus proved that he could do what he said he could do. And he didn't just say he could rise from the dead. He also said he could forgive us of our sins. And it proved that he was who he said he was. God with us. What's amazing is that a transformation happens in our life when we repent and believe this good news. God gives us a new desire and an ability to recover and pursue God's design. Now, the first time I saw this illustration played out, I thought, well, does that mean you just go right back into sin? (laughs) It kind of looks like this. What happens is when we recover from our brokenness and we pursue God's design, we are sent back out into a broken world. We don't just sit in this comfy room. I can't just stand before you and preach this message to a group I already know largely agrees with what I have to say. I have been sent out as a recipient of the cure for death to share this good news with non-believers. So I'm going to share a link to this three circles model on our Facebook page this week. If you need that link and you're not on Facebook, let me know. I can get that to you. It's a helpful tool for us to share the gospel. But one maybe low pressure way that we want to equip you to be evangelistic is what I call come and see. Maybe you still feel ill-equipped. Maybe you still feel like you don't understand what Jesus has done for you enough that you feel confident to tell others about it. I want you to get to that place, but while you're, while you're there, while you still feel ill-equipped, I want to put tools in your hands like these invite cards to say, just take one of these with you this week and pray that God would put one person in particular on your heart and share this with them and say, you know, I, I really don't know how to say this, but I love you and I want what's happened to me to happen in your life. So would you just come to my church with me on Sunday? And hear the good news of what Jesus has done? The Barna Research Group shows that nearly half of the unchurched in America would come if a friend invited them. That's pretty low pressure. You've got two friends that are unbelievers. The statistics would say if you invite them both, one of them will come with you. They're just waiting to be invited. They may not even be all that interested in organized religion. Quite frankly, neither are we. That's why the message on these invitation cards is we're not just talking, we're listening. Join the conversation. 
Your story matters. You matter to us because you matter to God. I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If you did, be sure to subscribe to our show so the most recent episode will always be in your feed, ready whenever you are. And secondly, if Grace Family has impacted you and you'd like to help us continue to reach others, you can click the link in the description and make a donation now. And we'll see you next time on the Grace Family Podcast.